Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 50. It's our first milestone episode, and I couldn't be more excited to bring you this case. It's incredibly infamous, and I happen to share a first name with its main suspect. Today's episode is on Lizzie Borden. You might be familiar with this children's rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. And now, despite the fact that the rhyme isn't necessarily accurate, uh, it does give an insight just to how famous or infamous this case became. Crime enthusiasts have been perplexed and intrigued by the Lizzie Borden case for over a century. The hatchet murders of Andrew Borden and his wife, Abby Borden, are among the few cases in American history to garner this much attention. But let's start back at the very beginning. Lizzie Borden was born on July 19, 1860, to Sarah Anthony Morse Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden in Fall River, Massachusetts. Three children were born to Andrew and Sarah after their marriage on December 25, 1845. Emma Lenora on March 1st, 1851, Alice Esther on May 3rd, 1856, who unfortunately passed away before turning two, and Lizzie in 1860. And on March 26th, 1863, Sarah would pass away, leaving Lizzie only two and a half years old. Emma promised her mother that she would always keep an eye on little Lizzie as she lay dying. Two years later, Andrew Borden would wed Abigail Abby Dufree Gray on June 6, 1865. They would never have any children together, but Lizzie and Emma would both live with their father and stepmother well into adulthood. Andrew Borden came from a powerful and affluent family that by 1714 owned a large portion of Fall River. He did, however, grow up in more humble circumstances, and as a young man, apprenticed as a carpenter, and assisted in the construction of the home at 92 Second Street, which he would later purchase. After taking out a $1,000 loan, he established a business partnership with William Almy and would subsequently become an undertaker. Both men were successful and made a living by creating and selling furniture and caskets. Andrew began investing in real estate by the 1850s and eventually rose to the position of president of the Union Savings Bank. He also served as a director of the Global Yarn Mill Company, the Troy Cotton and Woolen Manufacturing Company, the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Co., and the First National Bank. Borden would pay $10,000 in April of 1872 to buy the home he helped build at 92 Second Street, where he would settle with his wife and children, Lizzie, then 11 years old, and Emma, 21. According to Legends of America, Lizzie and Emma were never particularly close to their stepmother, whom they referred to as Mrs. Borden. They hardly ever ate meals together with Andrew and Abby, and the daughters started to worry that Abby's family was trying to access their father's money as their father became more wealthy. The family was devout when they were young and frequently attended the Central Congressional Church, which was situated in the well-to-do area of the Hill. In addition to teaching Sunday school, 
Lizzie was actively involved in religious events and organizations. Emma and Lizzie assisted their father in overseeing his rental homes when they were old enough. Emma was described as prim, confident, apparently reliable in every fiber, and that she rarely left the house. But compared to her sister, Lizzie was more animated and gregarious. She was regarded as having lovely red hair and had a number of suitors. But even if Lizzie had agreed to date someone who wasn't from her own station, her father would have dismissed them as fortune hunters. She and her sister were both destined to become spinsters. In May of 1892, pigeons were roosting in the barn of the Borden's house, and Andrew would slaughter them with a hatchet because he thought of them as a pest. Lizzie became upset because she had just constructed a roost for the birds, and both sisters would travel to New Bedford, Massachusetts for an extended vacation after another family dispute in July of 1892. Only one week before the murders, the sisters returned, but Lizzie didn't go right home. Instead, she would spend four days in a nearby rooming house before heading back to the house. The entire household had been extremely ill for several days before the murders. Abby had called Dr. Seabury Bowen on August 3rd to request a visit and informed him that she was concerned about poisoning. The doctor's opinion, however, was that poor diet was largely to blame. He volunteered to check on the rest of the family, but Andrew told him to go, since he thought Abby was wasting money on a doctor. Tensions in the Borden home had been rising for months, particularly after Andrew gave Abby a piece of real estate. The house that Emma and Lizzie had resided in up until their mother's passing was eventually given to them after they successfully argued for their right to a piece of property. They would sell it back to their father for $5,000 only a few weeks later. Bridget Maggie Sullivan, the Borden's maid, was asleep on her bed on August 4, 1892, after cleaning the home's exterior windows. It was 11 o'clock when she heard the city hall bell ring, and the hush was broken by Lizzie Borden, crying out, Maggie, come down. Come down quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. Maggie would leave the residence shortly after Andrew's body was found to locate a doctor. But in the meantime, numerous neighbors had been alarmed by Lizzie's screams and had called the police. A small crowd of onlookers slowly grew around the Borden home. Abby's whereabouts were still a mystery at this time. But Lizzie explained to her worried neighbors that her stepmother had received a note inviting her to see a sick acquaintance. Lizzie said that she thought her parents' milk had been tainted because they had been sick the previous day. Another maid went upstairs to check on Abby when Maggie came back with a local physician named Searbury Bowen, and that's how Abby's lifeless body was discovered, laying face down in a puddle of her own blood. Abby had been struck from behind more than a dozen times, according to Dr. Bowen. There had been 19 blows an autopsy would later confirm. The same hatchet or axe that had likely murdered Andrew had crushed her head with one careless blow striking the back of her scalp almost at the neck. Abby's body had black coagulated blood all over it. Immediately after being called to the home, the police looked for signs of an intruder, but weren't able to find any. Additionally, they searched the basement for a murder weapon and discovered two hatchets, two axes, 
and another hatchet head with a broken handle. Because the handle break appeared to be recent, the hatchet head was assumed to be the murder weapon. Strangely, though, they discovered no blood anywhere, except on the victim's bodies. The presence of people other than the police, such as journalists and nosy neighbors, would quickly taint the crime scene. The family were given a lot of latitude in terms of cleaning up the house. No one bothered to look for bloodstains on Lizzie or Maggie, and their rooms were only quickly examined. Later, the police would receive criticism for this carelessness. The police did not initially suspect Lizzie, because she taught Sunday school and was a spinster from a reputable household. Additionally, Lizzie had pledged to the district attorney that she had been in the barn hunting for an iron piece when the attacks occurred. The police initially thought a man, most likely a foreigner, was responsible for the murders. Several hours later, they'd even detain an innocent Portuguese immigrant. But it turns out this theory was just one of many false starts. On an adjacent property, a bloodied hatchet was discovered, but it had been used to kill hens. And at the time of the murders, a strange man was spotted close to the Borden property, but again he had a solid alibi. In the meantime, Lizzie's story began to change. Originally, she said she was looking for an iron piece when the murders had occurred, but then later changed her story to she was eating pears in the barn loft. But there was no tangible evidence against her, not even a piece of clothing covered in blood. However, as the authorities looked into the double homicide, they came to the conclusion that no one else could have done it. According to FamousTrials.com, two days after the murders, publications began publishing information suggesting that Lizzie, then aged 33, might have been involved in the death of her parents. The day before the murder, Lizzie was visiting S.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River and attempted to acquire prussic acid, a lethal poison, according to Ellie Bentz, a clerk at the store. The Boston Daily Globe would publish a story listing rumors that, quote, Lizzie and her stepmother never got along peacefully, and that for a considerable time back, they have not spoken. But it should be mentioned that the women's families believed their interactions and relationship were quite normal. The Boston Herald, however, thought Lizzie was innocent. Quote, from the consensus of opinion, it can be said, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmaidenly nor a single deliberately unkind act. The fact that Lizzie could say so little about her stepmother's movements after 9 a.m. also puzzled investigators, because in her account, Abby had gone upstairs to put shams on pillows. Additionally, they didn't believe her story that she was out in the backyard barn looking for irons during the 15 minutes that Andrew was killed in the living room. There were no tracks visible on the dusty floor of the barn loft where she claimed to have looked, and the loft's oppressive heat appeared likely to deter anyone from spending more than a few minutes looking for equipment that would not be used for days. Reconsidering the theory of a male intruder, one leading physician stated that hacking is almost a positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she is doing. Alice Russell, one of Lizzie's friends, would also say that she witnessed Lizzie burning one of her dresses at the stove in her home only a few days after the murders. Lizzie explained the clothing was damaged and no longer wearable when Alice would question her. 
Lizzie had to appear at an inquest hearing on August 8th, where apparently she gave conflicting details about the murders, only raising more questions. She'd be detained and arrested by August 11th. August 12th, she was charged and entered a not guilty plea. In Taunton Jail, which offered facilities for female inmates, she was detained. Lizzie would not testify in her preliminary hearing but the judge allowed Lizzie's statements at the inquest to be entered. He would then declare with tears in her eyes that she was likely to be guilty and convened a grand jury. During the final week of its term, the grand jury heard the case involving Lizzie Borden. After concluding his remarks, Prosecutor Knowlton unexpectedly asked Defense Counsel Jennings to make a case. In Massachusetts, this was unheard of. The grand jury was effectively conducting a trial. For a while, it seemed as though Lizzie's charges would be dropped. Then, on December 1st, Alice Russell gave testimony regarding the burning of the dress. Lizzie was then charged with three counts of murder the following day. She'd been accused of killing her father, her stepmother, and both of them, relating in three separate charges. June 5th, 1893 was chosen as the trial date. According to Aoto for Crime Library, the trial would take place from June 5th through June 20th, 1893, for a total of 14 days. Twelve middle-aged farmers and tradesmen were chosen for the jury, and it would take the prosecution around seven days to present its case. Opening comments were delivered by William Moody. He offered three reasons why Lizzie was guilty. First, Lizzie had planned the murder of her father and stepmother and was predisposed to do so. Second, her actions and inconsistent evidence didn't support her innocence. And third, she killed them. Moody would fling a dress onto the prosecution's table that he had planned to use as evidence later. Inside that dress, there was tissue paper covering the victim's fleshless skulls that would fly away when the garment dropped to the table. When Lizzie saw this, she would faint and fall to the ground. The prosecution would attempt to add Lizzie's inquest testimony to the record on Saturday, June 10th. But the defense would dispute it because it was statements from a witness who had not been properly charged yet. The judge refused to allow the inclusion of Lizzie's contradictory inquest testimony. Then Ellie Bentz, the pharmacy clerk, was called to the stand by the prosecution on Wednesday, June 14th. Again, the defense raised an objection. The judge concluded the next day that Mr. Bence's testimony and the entire matter of Lizzie's alleged attempt to acquire poison was irrelevant and inadmissible after hearing arguments from both the prosecution and defense regarding the significance of Lizzie's attempt to, to buy prussic acid. And while it was a poison, there are also legitimate uses for it. Only two days were needed by the defense to present its case. They primarily called witnesses to attest to the existence of a mysterious young man in the area of the Borden home. And Emma Borden would testify to the lack of any reason for Lizzie to have committed the murders. The final arguments for the defense were made by Robinson on Monday, June 19th. And closing arguments for the prosecution were started by Knowlton and finished the next day. Lizzie was asked if she had any further comments. She spoke only once throughout the entire trial. I'm innocent, she declared. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me.
The jury was sent to a separate room to deliberate at 3.24. A little more than an hour later, at 4.32 p.m., they returned with their decision. On all three counts, Lizzie was found not guilty. The judge sincerely thanked the jury and dismissed them. Technically, this case remains unsolved today because no one else was ever investigated for the double homicide. Now, the public and the media wouldn't simply let the case go. Rumors abounded and the majority of people didn't think she was innocent. She remained in Fall River, Massachusetts, an interesting choice because she would be shunned by her entire community. Now, at the time of his murder, Andrew, age 70, was the owner of numerous properties close to Fall River and had investments in a number of significant mills in the region. His estate was worth around $300,000, which would be more than $8 million today. Lizzie and Emma would receive a sizable inheritance from the estate, but they also had to make a sizable settlement to resolve claims by Abby's family. In 1893, Lizzie would finally buy her home in the wealthy Hill region, an area she had always desperately wanted and aspired to live in. She would rename the property Maplecroft. The 4,000-square-foot Queen Anne Victorian home included eight bedrooms, four baths, and six fireplaces. She would also employ a coachman, a housekeeper, and live-in servants. In 1904, Lizzie would meet Nance O'Neill, a teenaged actress, and the two would become inseparable for the following two years. Around this time, Emma would leave Maplecroft, where she had been living with Lizzie, because she was offended by her sister's relationship with the actress. On July 1st, 1927, Lizzie would pass away at the age of 67, following an illness brought on by complications from gallbladder surgery. Emma would fall down the back steps of her Newmarket home and die only nine days later as a result. The two would share a grave in the family plot with their sister who had passed away as a young child, their mother, stepmother, and their headless father. Lizzie and Emma both left large charity donations in their estates. Lizzie's went primarily to animal welfare, and Emma's went to a number of Fall River-based nonprofits. The maid, Bridget Sullivan, would pass away in Butte, Montana in 1948, more than 20 years after the Borden sisters. But I'm sure you're all wondering, if Lizzie truly did not commit these murders, then who did? Well, there are some alternative theories. Some believe that William, Andrew's illegitimate son, committed the crime, and that Lizzie and Emma plotted to conceal it. Some think the two sisters conspired to commit the murders together. Another theory contends that Lizzie and Bridget Maggie Sullivan had a relationship, and that in some way contributed to the murders. Maybe Abby and Andrew didn't approve. Others think that it was the work of an outsider. And of course, there are many who believe that Lizzie just simply got away with murder. According to Sherman for allthatsinteresting.com, the Fall River Historical Society acquired journals from Andrew Jackson Jennings, Lizzie's attorney, in 2012. The notebooks made explicit Jennings' perceptions of his client, who history recalls as being heartless and cold-blooded. Jennings, however, noticed that Lizzie had a vulnerable side and was mourning the death of her loved ones. These notes, however, 
didn't make it any clearer who actually killed the Bordens. Lizzie's story has been portrayed in music, radio, film, theater, and television, frequently in relation to the homicides for which she was found not guilty. One of the first theater adaptations of Lizzie was Lillian Gish's performance as Effie Holden in the 1933 drama Nine Pine Street. Only 28 performances of this play were ever performed. In 1947, we have Goodbye, Miss Lizzie Borden, a one-act play by Lillian Delator. In more modern times, we have The Lizzie Borden Chronicles in 2015, a limited series and a follow-up to the television film that depicted a fictionalized account of Borden's life after the trial. It was produced by Lifetime. After there had already been a television film, Lizzie Borden took an axe in 2014, in which Christina Ricci portrayed Borden. And we have the 2018 feature film Lizzie, starring Chloe Sevigny as Borden and Kristen Stewart as Bridget Sullivan. And this film presents the killings as a result of a lesbian relationship between Borden and Sullivan. And finally, the Borden house still stands today. And it's used as a museum and a bed and breakfast, so you can spend the night where Lizzie lived and where she potentially killed her family. You can even enjoy a mix of what the Bordens had for breakfast the morning of the murders. If you're into a more macabre vacation, the Fall River Historical Society keeps the hatchet head and other pieces of evidence from the trial on display. And that brings us to the end of this episode on Lizzie Borden. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of something to cover on an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or by email at Historical True Crime Pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.